Well, if you've got your Bibles, uh, I want to encourage you to turn uh, to 1 Peter. That's where we'll be looking at this morning. If you're going to use the the Pew Bible, like I'm using, um, it is page 1017. Top of the page, 1017. Uh, This whole series, uh, Refocus, Taking Every Thought... Um, and action, we could probably put both of them there, especially wrote every action captive, because a lot of times as Christians, we are really used to thinking. You come to church and we sing songs entirely sort of in the mind, and we're thinking these things, we're singing them out, and you, you get teaching, we do a lot of internalizing uh, uh, ideas, thoughts, scripture, all of these things. Uh, sometimes we wrestle, though, as Christians with putting them into action. And so we wanted this series to recognize that it's not only taking our thought life captive, but allowing our thought life to be taken captive, and so uh, creating our actions and making our actions those kinds of things that bring glory to God. This series came about because over the past um, year or so, I have had nearly a dozen people in my office from this congregation talking to me about anxiety, about depression, about having issues with children, about having marriage issues. And one of the things I noticed about, well, all y'all and Christian people, we have to do a little Southern because we did two Southern songs this morning. Victory in Jesus is constantly, is always going to have that Southern twang in my mind. And then um, because he lives, uh, reminds me of my grandpa as well, but uh, uh, sits in my mind. So anyway, uh, Christians, what we tend to do is we take these problems that, that we all have and we like to put them in the minister's office, or perhaps we keep them behind closed doors, but we don't ever share them or say them out loud. We never talk about mental health issues. Why? Because Christians are those people who have big smiles on their faces and Bibles in their hands and no problems in their lives at all, right? Except for we know that's not true. Everyone knows that's not true, but we don't like to bring it in and air it out. And so we do a lot of play acting in church, We do a lot of pretending in church. And if anything, one of the good things that I would like to see come out of this series is that we would stop that. That we would stop that. And we would recognize that prayer and scripture are essential to making it through life, but so is help. Scripture tells us to bear one another's burdens. The Bible says to bear one another's burdens. And and it doesn't take too much Bible reading as you sort of, if you just start in Genesis, start reading and start saying, man, our heroes are nuts in the Bible. These people have got issues. And what is God able to do with these people who have deep and abiding issues? Give you a Bible, right? I mean, it's incredible what God is able to do with broken people. And so there's no reason for us to be walking around pretending like we're something we're not. We use this word sin a lot in church. It's one of our, it's one of our favorite words, isn't it? We like gospel and we like sin. Probably shouldn't put it that way. But you, you know what I mean. We use the word a lot. And a lot of times as church folk, we, we tend to use this word sin with like a lowercase s. Like what I'm talking about is like my moral failures, the little things that I do that are wrong. And certainly sin does encompass those. But sin is a big word. It, it's an insidious word. It's like an epidemic. It's an infection. It is a beast that has infected the whole world. And we're willing easily to say that I do wrong things and that even my spirit is in some way broken in its relationship with God, that sin has affected me physically and sin has effectively affected me spiritually but it's also affected me mentally it also has affected me mentally and sometimes we just need to air that out 
I think scripture has a lot to say about these issues. And this morning, specifically, um, we're talking about, about anxiety. We might use uh, all, all forms of, we, we might say, Ashley had a very good um, definition of anxiety, and I'll point you to listen to that, uh, that, uh, that on the, the website when it goes up. But anxiety, worry, fear. These things are all, this word anxiety is, is all about sort of an irrational fear of the future. We don't know what's going to happen next. I don't, know, I don't know what they're going to think of me. I don't know what they'll say. I don't know if I'll lose my job. I don't know if my marriage will fall apart. I don't know if I'm going to lose my kids. I don't know how I'm going to pay the bills. I don't know how I'm going to make it through tomorrow. Shoot, I don't know how I'm going to make it through today. Am I ringing anybody's bell? You've been here. Anxiety. These things are all wrapped up in this. I don't know what will happen next, and I am afraid of it. I am anxious about it. In fact, for some of you, it might even cripple you because it's all you can think about, and you can't get past it, and you can't move forward. Well, I think Scripture has some encouragement for us this morning, and that's found here in 1 Peter. You could break 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through um, 6 through 11, in a a, a pretty simple way, we have verses uh, 6 and 7, which offer us a word of comfort. Then you have verses 8 and 9, which offer a bit of warning. And then you have verses 10 and 11, which again give us more comfort. I want to read this text, and then we'll dig right into it and, and, and tackle it verse by verse. So please look at your Bibles. Again, if you're using the Pew Bible, 1017 says this. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he might exalt you casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you so be sober minded be watchful your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour resist him firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And to him, to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. I love this passage. Um, As I was thinking about this topic I love this passage because it is so laden with anxiety language. Of course, it uses the word anxiety there, but you notice the language that's used here, suffering. In this text, is speaking about very real persecutions. So there are Christians that, that, that Peter is writing to, and he says, you are going to suffer jail time, you are going to suffer economic pressure, you're going to suffer social exclusion, you might even suffer death. Because you called Jesus Christ Lord. Now, I know many of you, in fact, I would, I would suspect every one of us has some form of anxiety going on in your life right now. Something you're anxious about. But none of us is worried about walking out the door today and being executed for our faith. Imagine the anxiety that would be upon you this morning if you knew if anyone found out you were here today, your life could be forfeit. Like This is real stuff. That he's talking about here. But, but he intensifies it. And, 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 and not only does the church have to worry about this fierce persecution that's happening here. But they also have to worry about this spiritual dimension. Unseen but nevertheless very real malevolent forces that are going to tear into you. 
ripping you open like a lion, stalking you in the grass. A lion you can't see, but a lion you hear, and you know it's coming. Maybe you feel like that. Like stepping out the door, the world is going to tear into you. You can't see it coming, but you hear it, you feel it, you sense it, you feel it coming up your spine. And you're so afraid, that anxiety is so crippling you, that the world is going to get you, that you don't even want to take the step out the front door Monday morning. Maybe you didn't want to take the step out the front door this morning. For some of us, those anxieties have names and they have faces. There are people at school, people at work, maybe people at home. For some of us, those anxieties don't have any names at all, but this sense of dread that, we, that we're so afraid of what's going to happen next, of what people will think, of what will happen to me. And so I love the scripture here because I think it is so very real. You see, anxiety very rarely, in my opinion, uh, is based upon nothing at all. The Bible here says there's a whole lot to be anxious about We sometimes take those two extremes, of course, but we understand that absolutely everything can turn on a dime. A marriage that was very firm one day can be shaken to its core the next. A job that was solid one day can be lost the next. A kid whose life looked bright and glorious and promising one day could have made one decision and that one decision ruined it the next. We understand that absolutely everything is up in the air. There is a lot to be anxious about. And you thought you came to church to be encouraged today, huh? (laughs) No, we want to be real today. And I think that includes encouragement because I think there is a ton of encouragement. But it isn't fake encouragement. It isn't like, hey, just buck up and everything's going to be cool. Don't worry about it. No, it is real encouragement on how you can deal with the fact that there is a dangerous world. Look at how... Peter encourages these Christians, these Christians who might just die for their faith here in verse 6. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. You see, uh, anxiety is that uh, fear of what's going to happen next, that fear of the future, whether we're talking distant or, or just the very next moment. What can you do about the future Nothing. And if you can't do anything about the future, why worry about it? If you can't do anything about the future, if you don't have any control of that, what could you do? You could humble yourself under the mighty hand of the one who can. Isn't that what Jesus gets at? Jesus, he talks directly about where his probably most famous sermon, we call it the Sermon on the Mount. It's in the, the book of Matthew in your Bible. It goes from Matthew 5 to, through chapter 7. And Jesus is on a mountain. He's talking to his disciples. And he's going, he's going, he's preaching, he's preaching. He gets to this place and he says, worry. Why are you worried? He says. Why are you being anxious? And in your being anxious, can you add a single second to your life? Can you add a second to your life and all that worry that you're doing? I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what will, what will come of my kids. I don't know what's going to happen with this job. Things are, and all of that fretting you're doing, have you added anything of value to your life? No. We understand this practically, but it's hard to put it into practice, isn't it? But part of it is just beginning to realize the way that we're thinking and to take that thought and to make it captive. Jesus says you can't add a second to your life, so why are you worried asking the questions? And he uses these questions. What will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? 
He says, don't pursue these things. Because the Gentiles, people who don't believe in God, they are obsessed with these things. But your heavenly Father knows you need them. It's not like God says, oh, shoot, I forgot to feed those people today. Right? God knows our needs before we ever bring them up. And so our worrying about it is taking something that God is in control of. We're taking it out of God's hand and trying to put it in our own hands. And of course, right, how is that going to pan out for us? Not well. Not well. So what can we do instead of that? Instead of focusing and, and fixing our, our actions and our thoughts on, man, how can I make this turn out well? How can I control the situation? How can I control my kids? How can I control my husband or my wife? How can I control my family? How can I control this dating relationship? How can I control my, my, my future grades and my future job? And my, how can I control all of these things that you have no control over whatsoever? Give it up, Jesus says, and seek first the kingdom of God. Of God and His righteousness, and everything else will be added to you. And then Jesus gives this great line. I love this line. Therefore, do not be anxious for tomorrow, because tomorrow has got plenty of anxiousness of its own. If we have no faith in God, no trust in God, if there is no God out there, then, then you are on your own. And you better be worried about what you're going to eat and what you're going to drink and what you're going to wear. You better be very concerned about the S&P. Be worried. Because it is all up to you. You're on your own. Yet scripture says over and over again, that's not reality. That is not the world we live in. We live in a world that is created by a loving God who has picked you, who loves you, who cares about you. This God has made all things, and if I can't control what becomes of me, if I can't make one of my hairs turn uh, gray or not gray without chemical help, if I can't control tomorrow, what can I do? Humble myself under the mighty hand of God. For what reason? Notice what he says. For what reason? So that at the proper time, Underline that, please, in your Bible. If you've got a pew Bible, underline it in the pew Bible so the next person who picks it up sees it. At the proper time. Notice he, 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 he points here to the one who controls time. We don't control time. In fact, the only thing you can control is your own thought life and your own actions. Everything else around you is completely outside your control. But he says, the God who makes and sustains time at the right time. Now, it's important that we recognize this because if it was up to me, the right time would be before the problem happens. Right? Yes, witness? Uh, but that's not necessarily God's plan. In fact, my experience in life is that it has never been God's plan. We sang, refine me through the fire this morning. Right? That's how God refines people. Through the fire. That's how he refined his own son. Through the fire. And so at the proper time, not when you want it, but at the proper time, God can do what? Look at your text, not at me, at the text. What's it say? God can exalt you. That's better than just like lift up and pick up and dust off. Exalt you. God's will. So that he can at the proper time Exalt you. I, I love that. 
It's not God's will that we be anxious and worried and afraid. In fact, what do we, say, what do we read in Scripture? That we have become Christians and through baptism received the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the seal and deposit, the presence of God in your life. And, and Paul, or yes, Paul writing to Timothy, who's sort of traveling to all of these different areas, preaching and speaking and sharing the gospel and doing all these things, entering into very risky situations. He says to Timothy, he says, we have not been given a spirit of fear or anxiety. We have been given a spirit of power and love and self-control. Imagine that, while the rest of the world, and man, are, are we freaking out these days in America? This has been a wonderful political season. I've had so much fun. I'm, I'm not joking. I, I have had, you can ask Laura, she just shakes her head at, well, she's always shaking. Other people who normally don't shake their heads at me, shake their heads at me now. It is a blast. I am, people are losing their minds out there. Why? Because they're afraid of the future. What would it look like for you in your family, in your school, in your, in your work, in your circle of friends and enemies for you to be the person who is not afraid, but rather who embraces the Holy Spirit which is in you, who embraces the reality, the truth that you are a person of power and love and self-control. I think that would be incredible. What's interesting here to me is that God doesn't open the door of the future and fix our problems by telling us what the future will be. It seems to me that God cares very much about keeping the future dark for me. And I've wondered why, because not only would it be much better if I knew it was going to happen tomorrow, but I can make a lot of money on it, right? <laughs> right? And yet it doesn't seem to please God that I know the future. Why do you think that is? So we can trust him. Yeah. So we can trust him. Anxiety treats every day with fear. Faith treats every day like a present. Like a present. There have been a few times in in our marriage um, where we had nothing. One of those times was in college. We got married um, entering into our senior year uh, at Great Lakes. Laura and I, and we had, we had nothing. Like, but it wasn't a big deal if we ate Hamburger Helper for the fifth night in a row. Like, we're like, whatever, you know, it'll, it'll pan out, it'll work out, no worries. We'll, we'll make it, you know, it's just, we're never worried about it. You know, well, there's no rent money yet, but, ah, you know, we'll get a paycheck sometime, I guess. <laughs> this is just, it was just haphazard. Fast forward to a few years later when we have a daughter, and things got a whole lot scarier when we had nothing. Uh, there were times in, our, in, our, in, that, in, uh, in that period of our life where we literally did not know how we would make, and like, I don't know where food's coming from, and all of these bills are stacked up, and I have no idea how we will make it. But we never let Emery know. Never let her know. Because what should kids be worried about? What toy will I play with next? Right? So I'm not really sure how we're going to feed her tonight. She's oblivious to this, you know, running around screaming and doing whatever kids do. And I am convinced that this is God's perspective for us. 
That God wants to worry about all those big questions. And that you and I, rather than treating each day with anxiety and fear, treat each day as though it was a present, a gift from God. And let God worry about what we will drink and what we will eat and what we will wear. And we can shake off the shackles of fear and anxiety and worry. Notice what can happen next. If you humble yourself before God so that at the right time he can exalt you, what can you do because of this? You can cast all your anxieties on him because the God who made yesterday, today, tomorrow, everything that is seen and unseen does something very important and personal. Do you see it there in the text? He cares about you. He cares about you. How powerful is that? A statement for Peter to write that can be passed down from generation to generation to understand this truth. And so we should shake off these babies. <laughs> Three weeks in and she's already making life difficult. Uh, shake off these shackles of anxiety and, and fear because that's what they are. They're chains that hold you down. That fear, that anxiety that's keeping you rooted in your fear, those are, those are things that are weighing you down. Cast them off. Now notice the second piece here that he gives a warning. He says to be sober-minded and to be watchful because there are spiritual forces, realities that are after you. So here again, the Bible doesn't play. We, we like to play about the Bible, but... The Bible doesn't play. The Bible is straight up and clear. It says, be sober-minded. So in our freedom from anxiety doesn't mean you need to become a fool, right? So if you're worried about your bills tomorrow, you shouldn't say, well, God will provide. I'm going to hit the casino, right? That's, or God will provide. I need that new video game. Or what, Eric Dush, wherever you are, stay clear of Best Buy, right? I mean, these are, there you are. I mean, we, we, we need to be sober-minded. We need to be watchful. We need to be paying attention, in fact. And this is where I'm going to point you back, again, to the stuff that Ashley talked about. It's going to be on the website. She gave some very practical ways of recognizing the ways in which our mind starts to play tricks on us. Um, we'll also send out her PowerPoint so you can have access to those tools. But we need to be shrewd. We need to be smart people. Being people of faith doesn't mean being foolish, doesn't mean being stupid. Rather, it means being very aware of the world around us, but not being worried about the world around us. Do you see the difference there? Being aware doesn't mean that we need to be fearful. Being aware just means that we can encounter that world without the blinders that fear puts on us. When you are in a situation of fear and you're encountering a, a fearful world, you are not able to make clear minded decisions but what the spirit of faith and power he says but resist the devil and stand firm in your faith by standing firm in your faith in god what are you able to do you are able to encounter this world which is dangerous with a clear mind with clear action with the spirit of power and love and self-control these warnings are real and clear cogent and true, and we should embrace them and hold fast to them, knowing that if we have these two things in place, if we have humbled ourselves before God 
so that he might at the proper time exalt us, casting all our anxieties on him because we know he cares for us, and while at the same time not pretending the world is something that it's not, but rather recognizing that not only very real physical persecutions, but very real spiritual realities are enemies out there against us. With those two pieces in mind, what are you able to do? Enjoy today. And I think ultimately, isn't that what some of this is about? I know that some of you think that Christianity is about being miserable. Some of you maybe went to churches where they impressed upon you that Christianity is about being miserable. and Perhaps you have just known some miserable Christians in your life. I'm pretty convinced that's not what Jesus is after. I'm pretty convinced that that's not what God is after. I'm pretty convinced that God calls us the children of God over and over again by the grace of Jesus Christ through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus so that we can live life, as the scripture says, Jesus is to the fullest. That we can be people of joy and peace and patience and kindness. That we can enjoy the very good world. You notice Genesis, the whole of this book, the whole of scripture opens up with a really long, and God made, and God made, and God made, and God made, and God made. To finally, he says, it's very good. Let's take a break. I mean, that, that sounds like kids playing with Play-Doh, right? I mean, that sounds like somebody having fun. That sounds like a creative, loving God who has made something so beautiful and good and wants to not only see you enjoy it, but enjoy it with you. And what we do when we let anxiety steal that joy is harm ourselves and harm those around us. And what the scriptures do here is say, that's not the perspective you need to have. That's not the life you need to live. There is so much more for you in Jesus Christ and in the church and in the kingdom. And he ends here in this last section, kind of couching and bringing it back through after touching again on that very real situation of persecution. He says in 10, after you suffered a little while. Now, I take this to be real. Again, I take this to be a physical persecution. And as I said, not many of us, and I hope none of us, are enduring any kind of physical per- persecution for your faith in Jesus. But we are, in many ways, suffering. Some of you have wrestling with health issues. Uh, some of you are wrestling with family issues. I, I, I could, the list could just go on and on. I don't know what you're wrestling with, but whatever you are wrestling with, after you have suffered a little while, tells me something very real. You're going to suffer. And it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you're an atheist or a diehard Christian or a Buddhist or a Muslim. or a, I mean, the, the world is going to bring about times where you're going to be scarred. In fact, as a parent, this is the most painful thing. I think as I ruminate on the future of my daughter, I think she's going to hurt. Like there's going to be a day when she comes home from school and she's going to cry on daddy's shoulder because somebody was cruel to her. And I'm going to want to kill that kid, right? But I'm going to know I can't kill that kid. I'm going to have to remember Jesus for a moment. And I'm going to have to say something horrible to my daughter. We've got to forgive her. We've got to forgive him. Let's pray for her. Let's pray for him. And knowing that that scar might just be, you know, just a little bit deep, or that scar might be right to the heart. It's real. It's painful. The scripture doesn't pull any punches on it. 
And one of the things I worry about so many, uh, what, we, what we consume as Christians is that it's all sort of, sort of, sort of frilly. Like this is my, ugh, well, you can hate me, I don't care. Uh, this is my problem with the Christian radio station. It's all so frilly. I mean, everything is joy, 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 joy. And there is a ton of joy in life. In fact, I, in, in all of my days, and some of them have been really dark, the, the, the majority of my day, even in those dark moments, is covered over with the grace of God. I know that's true. But sometimes we just are not very real. And the Bible is. And it says, you might suffer for a little. In fact, it says, after you suffer for a little while, what will happen? He who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will. Now, I want to stop there for a second because I think this is a really important point um, and, and it's really missed sometimes. I want to hover over this idea of this glory in Christ. It would take us all day and all afternoon, and I know you all don't have that kind of patience, and that's okay, uh, to talk about and pull apart all of the ways in which God is going to bring glory into our lives, both now and tomorrow and forever. But I want you to notice when I think of the glory of Christ, especially within this text, I think of glorification. That is the changing of the perishable to the imperishable, from the temporal to the eternal. A lot of times we have a very weird idea about what God is up to in Jesus and in us for all eternity. We have an idea, and it's, and it's partially because of these nonsense 90 minute in heaven, like, movies and books and stuff that they put out where they've spent far too much time watching Looney Tunes and not enough time reading the Bible. Our hope is not that this ethereal part of me that we sometimes call a solar spirit will kind of float up into the land of clouds and harps and wings. Our hope is resurrection. They go to find Jesus because guess what? They killed Jesus and they go to the tomb in the morning and what do they find in the tomb in the morning? You know, what do they find? Nothing. They don't find a body with a spirit that's gone on. They find nothing. Why? Because the dead has come back to life. Now, Jesus is not the same. He's changed. His material makeup is different. He's able to either walk through walls or teleport. I like teleport better. He's able to teleport into locked rooms. So certainly something has changed about Jesus. More than that, he is glorified. He is never going to die. He's able to be in the presence of God. I mean, there, there's all kinds of things that are, that are changed because of him or, or in him in this moment physically. But he still has physicality. He still has a body. In fact, he spends a lot of time. He, tries, he eats in front of the disciples, both in Luke and in John, right? He eats in front of them to show them he's, he's not a ghost. Remember Thomas? Thomas, who, who, who says, as the disciples say, we saw Jesus. And Thomas says, no, you didn't. Because people don't come back from the dead. Like, dead's dead, man. Like, I, I, this is done. We're, we're, we're over. Jesus is gone. Move on, guys. And they're like, no, we saw Jesus. We saw Jesus. And then Thomas is with them. All of them are together. And Jesus appears. And what does Jesus say to Thomas? Touch me. But he doesn't just say, touch me. What does he say? Touch my scars. Life will scar you. It will scar you. And I, because of this, this, this encounter with Jesus, have kind of taken it to be very rel- relatively literal that I will carry my scars with me. I carry them now. You carry yours. We carry what has happened to us in the world. 
And some of us have allowed that thing that we carry, that scar we received, we have never let it heal. Or we have allowed it to make us so fearful, so anxious that we aren't willing to step out. We aren't willing to take the risk. We are afraid. We're shackled by the past. But what this text tells me, it is that the scar, the wound, the fear, the hurt, the death itself does not have the final word. Because if we humble ourselves underneath the mighty hand of God, who at the proper time can not only lift us up, but exalt us, allowing us to cast every single fear and care and worry and anxiety upon the one who holds the future. The one who, because of his great grace, even though we have suffered for a little while, has called us to something excellent, called us to the glory that is in Christ Jesus, that this God himself who cares for each and every single one of you, himself will restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. And so what I am praying you will take from this time in scripture and in praise and in worship this morning is this. Do not be afraid how many times does God say this throughout scripture do not be afraid the angels come do not be afraid go attack the walls of Jericho do not be afraid do not be afraid do not be afraid let's stand and sing